0: Father God, we thank you that what we are just saying is so true, that you are so worthy of our praise, worthy of our lives, worthy of our adoration, worthy of our worship today, worthy of our trust, worthy of our prayers, worthy of our commitment, worthy of our service, worthy of our trust. Father, teach us today how to trust you when it's hard to trust you, how to trust you when we especially need to trust you how to find in you all that we need in those places where where we need you the most. So speak to us from your word, by the power of your spirit, into our minds, hearts, and lives today. I ask for me and for us, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. It is so good to see you. It is so good to be back and to be back here with you. Uh, Two months, uh, we had the surgery July 1st. Two months is the longest we've been gone from chapel since we started, 11 years ago. You know, I was thinking about it the other day. That's actually the longest I've gone without speaking on a Sunday morning in nearly 40 years. I started preaching right after the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus had just finished and I picked up the mantle from there and we just kind of went on from there and, you know, and... And all these years and now, you know, so uh, yeah, but uh, what, what an interesting experience and just so grateful to you for your prayers, your support, your encouragement. I'll say more about that in a second. One of the things I prayed for as we got into this uh, back before the surgery on July 1st was, Lord, teach me something I couldn't learn another way. Teach me a lesson, Get maybe more than one, something that I wouldn't have known if it weren't for this. I don't want to waste this I don't want to waste this experience. And so, Lord, what would you have me know that I couldn't know in some other way? And the lesson that I have learned is the thing I want us to talk about today is the folly of self-dependence, the folly of self-dependence. So, here's the surgeon who did my four-level spinal fusion on July 1st. His name is Ioannis of Ramos. I don't know the first thing about how to do what he does. If I had to do your back surgery, you should find a surgeon. I mean, I wouldn't know, wouldn't begin to know how to do this. From the time we were in the holding room before the surgery until I woke up on the other side, my life was completely in his hands, right? I mean, you've had surgery, you know how this works. I mean, if I woke up, if I didn't, whatever happened, completely in his hands. There was a neurologist involved, anesthesiologist, all kinds of people, and I was absolutely at their mercy, totally dependent. Well, this is what he did. That's what's in my back now. Now, to me, I think you can just go down to Lowe's and get some screws. I mean, you know, and, you know, get a power drill or something and go to work. But uh, apparently, it's a little more involved than that. And that's what's holding my lumbar together now in the midst of all this spinal fusion and all of that. So, during the surgery, completely dependent on him. On the other side, Once surgery is done, completely dependent on the nurses and the care attendants at Baylor Plano, which is where we did the surgery, for the next four days, four days and three nights, completely helpless. I'd never spent a night in a hospital as a patient, had not had that experience before. Taught me, you're dependent on pushing the button and hoping somebody's on the other side. You know what I mean? I just had not experienced that before. Then when I got home, and actually before that, I have been completely dependent on super nurse. So, uh, Janet has been incredible through all of this. And, I mean, dependent on a level, I just have never been. I can't lift, bend, or twist. Can't pick up anything more than 10 pounds, which is not entirely bad, guys. I mean, you know, uh, Janet takes the trash out. She vacuums. I saw the surgeon last Thursday and asked, could we make this permanent? Could I get some kind of a a sign that this is, you know, going to be just the way it is? But, I mean, I can't put on socks. I literally can't bend to put on socks. Everything for two months, completely dependent on her. And she's been unbelievable. It's been so incredible. She drove out. I can't drive for that length of time. Just so much. Just totally dependent on her and on you. Your prayer support, your encouragement, your intercession, your cards, your kindness. So grateful to you. So grateful to Mike and Sheila Carter for what they do to make chapel happen. I mean, back before surgery and now, we just show up on Sunday and talk. I mean, everything. Is what they do from routers to everything else Mike mentioned before that has to happen, to Sheila doing the PowerPoint to the whole nine yards. So grateful to Dr. Mark Terman for speaking so much in my absence and doing such a terrific job, and Christy Penn and uh, and Tyrone and Johnson, our dear friend, and, and to you for your encouragement and your prayers. Just That's one of the things I've learned is self-dependence, uh, or the folly of self-dependence. But something I've learned along the way, however, is that when you're most need to depend on others can be a time when you're most tempted not to. You know, the harder the storm, the harder you row. The higher the climb, the harder you climb. The greater the challenge, the more we just want to get up earlier and stay up later and try harder and work longer and, and just work harder and make this happen. It's just human nature. And if you're kind of an achiever type person, even more the case, right? I mean, the harder the test, the harder you study. The greater the challenge just the more you buckle down. And part of the reason I think God wanted to use this to, uh, to teach me the folly of self-reliance is that that was so stupid. I mean, I literally couldn't do the surgery, couldn't be the nurse, can't do what Janet does. I had to get to that place to learn that because the harder the challenge, the greater the temptation to self-reliance. One more piece of it, when in part the challenge is there Because God isn't doing what you wanted God to do, the temptation to self-reliance becomes even greater. I injured my back eight years ago. For eight years, I have prayed we wouldn't have to do this surgery. This is what they call the nuclear option. You do this after everything else fails. I have prayed for eight years for God to heal me miraculously, and He didn't do that. He's healing me medically, I trust and pray, and I'm so grateful for that. We're making good progress and grateful for all of that. But God did not answer my prayer the way I prayed it. He just didn't. You're in places like that where God is not doing in your life, at least so far, what you want Him to do. And that's when we can especially be tempted to turn from God to ourselves. I was talking to a longtime friend this week, Again, I go back to seminary days. Again, right after the Sermon on the Mount, we went to seminary, you know, and all of that, been friends for 40 years. I did not realize, uh, we hadn't been in touch in recent years, one of his sons died of cancer three years ago. And I had not realized how difficult the last three years had been for my friend. We just not had been in a place where he could talk to me about that and that kind of honesty. He's a theologian. He is a seminary and a college professor. He's a a minister. But in the Zoom call, he said, Jim, there are days when my faith is about like that, when it's really hard because we prayed so hard and God didn't do what we asked him to do. And then he told me something I think I'm probably not going to forget. He told me just the previous week he had been talking to a friend of his down in Houston where he lives, a Jewish rabbi, rabbi, and the rabbi said to him, You know, when someone bloodies your nose, it's hard to go to them to ask for help in stopping the bleeding. When you feel like God bloodied your nose, it's hard to turn to God for help to stop the bleeding. When you feel like God didn't do what you wanted Him to do, when God didn't answer your prayer the way you wanted Him to pray it, then the temptation to self-reliance gets even greater. When God doesn't seem to be present, when it seems He's not on the job, when He's not available, when He's asleep in the boat, that's when it's tough to trust. Well, that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to look at an actual time in the Bible when God fell asleep. Not metaphorically, not figuratively, not poetically, literally fell asleep in a storm. And we're going to see how that storm relates to our storm and how we can learn to trust God when it's hard to trust God. All right? So, you didn't know that story was in the Bible, did you? That God actually fell asleep. Well, here you go. It's in Matthew chapter 8 says in verse 23, Jesus got in the boat and his disciples followed him. We've talked about this before. That's what they call the Jesus boat. It's a first century boat discovered back in 1986, 27 feet long, seven and a half feet wide, four and a half feet deep. It could be similar to the boat. Jesus. We don't know that Jesus was in that boat, but something like that would have been the boat that's in our story. This is what it would have looked like in Jesus' day. Something like that is the kind of boat, so figure that in your mind, have that in your mind, They get into this boat, to get out on the Sea of Galilee. Behold, there arose a great storm on the sea. The Greek says a mega seismos, a mega seismos, a massive shaking on the sea, on the Sea of Galilee, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. So this is what the Sea of Galilee usually looks like. It's a beautiful body of water. I love the Sea of Galilee. Love going there. Love seeing it. But it sits in a basin. That's what it looks like topographically. Sea of Galilee, 680 feet below sea level. Mount Hermon, way up there to the north, it's kind of a fuzzy picture, is 9,232 feet above sea level. And so storms, as they sweep from the north and the west, that make their way down without warning. You can't see them coming. You're surrounded by this mountain range, the Golan Heights to the east and mountains to the west. And when storm fronts come across, you can't see them. They just emerge. They're just all at once. They just show up. And that's what's going on here. All at once, this great seismos, this great storm on the sea, the boat's being swamped by the waves. If you've got a boat, you know that's bad, right? When the water It's okay for the boat to be in the water. It's bad when the water's in the boat. Well, that's what's happening. The boat's being swamped by the waves, but Jesus was asleep in the boat. While the storm is happening, while the boat's being swamped, Jesus was asleep. Now, we could have a long conversation about Jesus' humanity, couldn't we? how Jesus got hungry, how he got tired, how he slept, how he thirsted on the cross, how he sat down by, the, by Jacob's well because he was tired and weary. Jesus felt everything we feel. He was just as human as we are and just as divine as God. That's a mystery. But Jesus was fully God and fully man. And he's had a long day. If you go back and read Matthew chapter 8, he's had a long day. And they've gotten on the boat, and Jesus There's a place in the back of the boat. There's kind of a, and on the Jesus boat especially, there's a plank there where you could put a pillow and you could put your head down and you could rest. Jesus was taking a nap. Jesus was asleep. So the disciples go to him and they wake him and they say, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. Now these are hardened, battle-tested fishermen. They fish for a living on the sea. For them to say we are perishing means they're perishing. They're not overreacting here. These are not guys that have never seen a storm on the Sea of Galilee. They've done all they can do. They've rowed as hard as they can row. They've been bailing water. They've done all they can do. And now they're perishing. So they wake Jesus up and they say, save us, Lord, save, it says in the original, save us, Lord, curry us. We are perishing. Makes all the sense in the world that they would do that, right? And Jesus says to them, why are you afraid? oh, you of little faith. We're going to come back to that. Laying there in the boat, hasn't gotten up yet, head on the pillow, turns around and says that to them. And then he gets up and he rebukes the wind and the sea. And there was a great calm. I love that phrase. So does Janet. My wife's latest book is entitled A Great Calm. That's the gift of God, a great calm. There was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? Incredible story, isn't it? Well, let's go back to Jesus' response to them. Why would he say that? In the middle of a storm, when they cry out for help, why would he rebuke them? Like that. Why would he say, why are you afraid? I mean, why are they afraid? Of course they're afraid. It's a storm. The boat's being swamped. Why does Jesus, the perfect, sinless Son of God, have to say that to them? What's going on here? Is it that they were wrong to be in the storm? Was it their fault they're in the storm? Well, no. Back earlier in the text, remember Jesus got in the boat and his disciples followed him. If you read back earlier in Matthew 8, you'll see that Jesus saw a crowd around him. He gave orders to go over to the other side. Then some stuff happens and then they get in the boat. They're in the boat because they're following Jesus. It's not their fault they're in the storm. Jesus gave orders to get in the boat and get on the lake. And then the storm happens. There are times in our lives where the storms are not your fault. When, in fact, it's because you were following Jesus, you're in the storm. Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. What they did to me, they'll do to you. Now, that's not always the case. Sometimes the storms are our fault. Sometimes it's our own sin that got us where we are, and it's the consequence of our sin. Here, it's the opposite. Don't assume if you're in a storm, it's always your fault. If you're following Jesus, Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulation but be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. There are times you're following Jesus and you're in a storm anyway, or even because you followed him, and that's what's going on here. So it's not that they were sinning by being in the storm. Did they make a mistake by asking for his help? Maybe they're just supposed to sit in the boat and wait for Jesus to wake up. Maybe the sin here is that they bothered God, that they disturbed Jesus, that they wouldn't let him get his rest, that they wouldn't let him finish his nap. Except just earlier in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus said, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. They're doing exactly what he asked them to do. Jesus said, when you're in trouble, pray. The Bible says in the book of James, you have not because you ask not. We're supposed to pray. When you're in a storm, you're supposed to say, save us, Lord, for we're perishing. So that wasn't it. So why did Jesus rebuke them? Not because they wouldn't, it was their fault they were in the storm, not because they asked him. Maybe they asked him the wrong way. Maybe their prayer wasn't a biblical prayer. Maybe there was something they did wrong in the prayer. Except the prayer is exactly the way the Bible wants us to pray. It's specific, it's direct, it's heartfelt, it's sincere, it's transparent. It's not, remember the story of the Pharisee and the publican? How the Pharisee prays in his pride, Lord, I thank you that I'm not a publican like this guy. There's none of that here. You've been around people that were praying, and it was pretty obvious they were trying to impress you more than God. You've heard those prayers maybe. I hope you haven't. Probably you have. There's a story going back to when LBJ was president. Bill Moyers, the Baptist minister, was his press secretary, and they were at some event, and Bill Moyers, because he was a minister, was called on to pray the invocation. And he was praying, and the president said, speak up, I can't hear you. And Bill Moyer said, I wasn't talking to you, Mr. President. Well, there are times people are, aren't there? You've heard prayers, and they were more for the people in the room than the one you were praying to. That's not going on here. They are transparent. They are sincere. They are passionate. They're specific. They're doing all of that. And still Jesus says, why are you afraid? You have little faith. So what's going on here? What's happening? Why did Jesus rebuke them as he did? Well, I've pondered that this week. I've never preached on this text. Best I can tell. Look back at all my notes. Keep all my notes of all my sermons. I can't find that I've ever preached on this text before. Maybe this is why. That's a good question, isn't it? Why would he treat them this way? Why would he respond this way? As I prayed and thought and really pondered on it, I actually had a different answer. I was working on the sermon on Friday, and then in the midst of all of that, something else came to me that I think is actually the answer to the question, the reason why. I didn't know this till they did some commentary work. In all of biblical history to this point, no human before now has ever stilled a stormy sea by their words. Now, humans have been used by God to heal people. Elijah even raised from the dead. So everything Jesus has done to this point has been done by humans in the power of God before. If you go back earlier in Matthew 8, you find Jesus healing a centurion servant and a leper and Peter's mother-in-law and healed demoniacs and healed people that were sick with various diseases, but that's been done before. No one's ever stilled a stormy sea. No human, even in the power of God, has ever done that before. So the disciples come to Jesus. They cry for help. I mean, why not? You've tried everything else you've rowed, you've you've bailed, you've done everything you can do. Here's Jesus. He's done all this other stuff. Maybe he can help us. Maybe he can help us out here. Maybe he can do this too. He's done this other stuff. Maybe he can do this too. And when he does, when he answers their prayer, when he stills the sea, this is what I realized Friday as I was working on the sermon. Look down at the end. After he did all of that, they said, After they skip the, you know what? I'm gonna go back and show you this. Meant to do this. In the Bible, God stills the seas. Psalm 89, you rule the raging of the sea when its waves rise. You still them. You he made God made the storm be still and the waves of the sea were hushed. God does that. Humans have never done that before. Okay? That's God's business. And so, again, when they come to him and they ask for his help and they say, Lord, save us, and he answers their prayer, look at their response. What sort of man is this? That even the winds and the sea obey him. They still don't get it. Not yet. If they did, they wouldn't have been afraid. If they knew it was God in the boat, not just a man, an incredible man, a man that has been used by God to heal lepers and centurion servants and Peter's mother-in-law, preached the incredible Sermon on the Mount, but a man. They were afraid because they were afraid Jesus wasn't enough. Not for this. Not for this one. He was enough last week. He was enough for that. He answered that prayer. He met that need. He forgave that sin. But maybe not for this one. Maybe not enough for this surgery. Maybe not enough for this crisis. And out of the story, remember this God is always enough. even when it doesn't seem he is he is always enough the god of the universe we'll say more about this next week on labor day I'm going to talk a little more about the omnipotence of god next week the god who created the universe is enough the god who created the sea of galilee can still the sea of galilee the god who created the planets can run the weather even when you think he's asleep even when it doesn't seem he's doing what you want him to do god is always enough now i am not saying he's going to be enough always in the way you want him to be I'm not saying that it says in isaiah 55 as the heavens are higher than the earth so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts as i said i would much rather god have healed me miraculously than medically I don't understand why God didn't answer my friend's prayers and save the life of his son. We have a dear member of our staff at Denison Ministries. She has been a friend of our family since we moved to Dallas. She and her husband have a two-year-old, four-year-old now, Jackson's four, my goodness, son. And we just got word today that probably, we're not sure yet, and obviously we're praying, but if so, unless something changes, the next step for her husband is going to be hospice. And they're in their early 30s, I guess. I'm sorry? Craig's age. She's 34. I am not saying God always does it the way you want him to do it. I'm not saying that our ways are his ways, and we understand his mind and his thoughts And if you would go to God and say, Lord, we are perishing, he will always still the storm the way you want him to. There's an old saying that says God sometimes calms the storm, and sometimes he lets the storm rage and calms his child. And that can be an even greater miracle. But what I am saying is, no matter what the storm, no matter how asleep God seems to be, you can go to him and you can say, save, Lord, we are perishing. You can do that. And you can know, no matter where you are, no matter what you are, no matter what is happening, God is always enough. And the will of God never leads where the grace of God cannot sustain. The will of God never leads where the grace of God cannot sustain. So let me ask you, what's your storm? Not a rhetorical question. Does it seem God's asleep in your boat? If so, this story's in the Bible for you. They didn't write it down so the guys in the boat might remember it. They didn't write it down because they thought they might forget about this in a couple years. And so Matthew needed to make sure to put this on paper before anybody forgot about it. You remember that day that Jesus woke up and calmed the stormy sea for the first time in human history? Oh, yeah, I'm so glad you wrote that down. No, it's not in the Bible for their sake. It's in the Bible for your sake. And you were supposed to be here today, and we were supposed to be here today so that you could trust God today. So let's do that. Pray with me. Take this moment, name your storm, and go to God and say, Save, Lord, I am perishing. Tell them those words or whatever words. Express your heart. If it's not for you, it's for somebody else. Right now, Janet and I are praying for our dear friend and her husband and for their family. Go to God and say, "Save, Lord, I am perishing, or he is perishing, or she is perishing. Give your storm to your Savior right now. And now believe that God is enough. Tell him, God, I believe that you are enough. Tell him that. And if you really can't, that's okay. If you don't really today have enough faith to believe that God is enough, then ask God for the faith to have faith. He knows your heart. Say, Lord, I'm struggling to believe that you're enough. Help me believe that you're enough. Pray that prayer of that father in Mark chapter 9. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. It's my favorite prayer in the Bible. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Tell him that. Lord, help me to have faith to have faith. Help me to believe that you're enough. Pray that to him right now. Father God, I thank you that you're enough whether I believe it or not. That you're enough whether I see it or not. That you are always enough. And your will never leads where your grace cannot sustain. We claim that grace in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Amen. God bless. Have a great Sunday.